welcome back to Gentle Man, redefining manhood in the 21st century. My name is Arjuna, I'm your host. Today I want to talk about privilege, specifically male privilege. Men have had privilege in human society, tracing back at least as far as the agrarian revolution, and probably even further back than that. There are a lot of theories as to why that may be, which I'm not going to cover today. More what I intend to focus on is examining how that privilege plays out, and particularly the ways in which it can be harmful, both to the men who experience privilege and to others who do not have that privilege. So privilege has been the topic of a lot of discussion lately along many different vectors. A lot of conversations are happening currently around race privilege, economic privilege, the privilege of being able-bodied, the privilege of being neurotypical. There are many different privilege hierarchies which you see evident in cultures around the world. Some are more universal than others. And I would say male privilege is one of the most universal, intact hierarchies in contemporary culture. Male privilege is massive, it is pervasive, it is omnipresent. I think it is hard to really grasp the scale of male privilege and how it plays out in culture and the effects that it has on culture. I remember a previous guest on this show, Foster McEwen, talking about how even though he had grown up socialized female, it wasn't until he transitioned that he realized the extent of male privilege and just how far it reached. So this is one of those topics to which a lifetime of study could be devoted. And today I intend to talk about simply a few of the most salient points that stand out to me when I'm thinking about why privilege can be harmful and why it creates problems. So the first thing that I want to say about privilege is that it is often presented in a light of being beneficial to the people who experience privilege and detrimental to those who don't experience privilege in any given context. And while I think many in a paradigm of privilege would choose to be on the side of privileged versus the side of being underprivileged, the argument that I'm making today is that ultimately everyone loses under systems of privilege and under social hierarchies that would seek to limit the resources and the freedoms and the expressions of certain classes of people. The notion of any group being better than another group or a group of people needing to be categorically prioritized or a group of people needing to categorically have access to more resources than another group of people is troubling. What it really gets down to is a social assessment on the fundamental value of people. So in any system in which a certain group of people is considered to be fundamentally more valuable, you're going to start to see certain social evils pop up. You start to see people thriving while other people suffer. You start seeing bizarre disparities such as certain people being well-fed and healthy and having excess food while other people starve. You see people having more money than they know what to do with, while other people struggle to cover their basic costs in life. And when you remove the gap between these disparities, they truly start to reveal how absurd they are. So in the food example, if you were to take a wealthy person with a full banquet table entirely to themselves and place them in a room with a bunch of hungry people, it's kind of a no-brainer 
the idea of denying hungry people access to the food in the room would be kind of absurd. And yet our social hierarchies are so ingrained and they're so second nature, they are so taken for granted, and they are also so reinforced by social rules and actually physically enforced through violence, through the threat of violence and imprisonment, that we can begin to forget we're even operating under them. We can begin to assume that they are somehow fundamental or innate and that they need to exist or that they are too immovable to imagine not existing. And it is true that the grooves are worn so deeply in a lot of these behaviors that shifting them really is monumental. It's a multi-generational challenge. It's a challenge as fundamental as any that humanity faces. And it's work that will never be completed in any one person's lifetime, which I think is what qualifies it as being the most important work. So while some benefit in systems of privilege, what I want to underscore is that the very existence of systems of privilege rests upon a damaged notion of what culture is and rests upon a damaged notion of what humanity is. So while some may choose or desire to be on the winning team in the game of privilege, I'm suggesting that the very game of privilege is harmful to everyone. And it is my belief that those growing up in cultures or societies in which the concept of privilege and social hierarchies don't exist, or at least certainly not in the way that they currently exist in the contemporary world in most cultures, would be horrified to experience it. I would rather not be playing that game at all. So why is privilege so harmful? Firstly, privilege is based on the notion of separation. So in order for privilege to exist, you have to separate people into different groups based on any number of identifiers. And while separation in and of itself is not inherently harmful, a separation in which there is an inequality of power and the allocation of resources can start to become very harmful. example of the kind of dynamic that you can see with a class separation would be in a workplace environment. Oftentimes you'll see a separation between management and the general staff. And so this can manifest in situations such as somebody gets promoted to a managerial position in which they're no longer on an equal footing with the rest of their co-workers. And all of a sudden they can start to experience a certain kind of exclusion, a certain kind of being ostracized from their peers. They may not feel as invited to sit with their peers during lunch, for example, or maybe if they go out for drinks with people who used to be their peers, they may experience those people not being as open with them because all of a sudden this person is in a position of power over these people. And so their coworkers aren't going to have the same level of trust and the same level of intimacy with them that they used to. 
So this is an easy way to see some of the harm and some of the challenge that can come from being put into a more privileged place in society. There's a certain kind of camaraderie and a certain kind of sharing and a certain kind of relatability that you might get cut off from. And this kind of isolation can really compound. In an extreme example, you can start to see dictators, maybe such as Kim Jong-il or Joseph Stalin, becoming increasingly disconnected from and paranoid towards the people that they rule over, and ultimately ending up living in a really bizarre and horrible reality bubble from which great harm can be inflicted and caused. So that's an example of what can happen when it's taken to its extreme. Now, when talking about male privilege, we see this kind of separation playing out in a number of ways. We see men not being trusted in simple examples such as walking down the street. A lot of women will feel very uncomfortable walking down the street with a random man that they don't know, and they might cross the street, or they might take other measures, measures to put more distance between themselves and a man that they don't know. Women or non-binary people may also instate a kind of polite distance or maybe even an impolite distance with men in general, either out of a fear of falling under some common form of male violence, or maybe they're just tired of men or tired of being around men, tired of the privileged dynamic that men live in, and so they may seek to distance themselves from men in general. And so over time, men may start to feel really isolated, or they may start to feel like they're not really understood by the people around them. They may start to have this feeling of, oh, I can't talk to anyone. This was a, a common backlash in the Me Too era was men saying, oh, well, I, I guess I just can't talk to women anymore. Or, you know, I can't feel free to express myself anymore. I have to be really careful about my conduct and I have to be careful in case it might be misconstrued as me being a sexual harasser or as me being some kind of bad man. And while I think that that argument was often made in bad faith in public, I do think that there was a lot of truth underlying that to how a lot of men feel and how a lot of men have felt. And while I think the fundamental logic of that argument is faulty, in the sense that I think it's obvious that men should not be able to just say whatever they want or behave however they want, especially given the precedent of how men have typically comported themselves in the past, I think that there is a truth underlying that argument, which is the fact of rape culture and the fact of the prevalence of male sexual harassment does create an environment in which people who aren't men need to be careful and who frankly need to protect themselves. And that in turn creates an environment where men are often not seen as trustworthy and where men actually can't express themselves freely and their right to be careful about that. And they are right that it is harmful to them as well. I think a majority of men would be much happier in a society in which there wasn't that level of separation and in which there didn't need to be that level of separation. So in a society in which there wasn't a prevalent pattern of male violence and male sexual harassment and male rape, I believe men would be received and met with a lot more intimacy, with a lot more trust with a lot more genuine friendliness from people who aren't men because there would be no reason for the distrust. That's a world that I would like to live in and a world that a lot of men, I believe, would love to live in. And I think it really highlights how harmful this privilege gap can actually be.
I believe what most men want is the same thing that most people, most human want, which is to have intimacy, to be trusted, to be able to have connecting interactions with other people, to be able to feel solidarity, to be able to feel included in things, to be able to feel invited in things, to be able to feel like a valued presence to be able to feel belonging. And the long history of male misconduct and male violence has really severed men from being able to enjoy a lot of those things. Or it can make it very much harder for men to experience those things in a really authentic way. So I think a lot of men don't realize how much they're missing out on because of their privilege. So let's give some more general examples of how this dynamic currently plays out. Men are often not trusted in touching other people, because it might end up being sexual harassment or the fear of sexual harassment might be there. People might not come to men when they have something delicate or especially emotionally delicate, which they want to talk about, because they might fear that a man won't have the emotional maturity to receive what they're hearing. Or again, because of a fear of verbal violence or verbal abuse that a person might receive from a man. A lot of people wouldn't trust the average man to be around their children unless they'd already been screened. I can almost guarantee that if you have a mother with a baby who, for whatever reason, needs to hand that baby over to a stranger for a moment, maybe they need to take care of something, maybe it's some emergency happening, that woman is almost always going to look for another woman to hold the baby over a random man. And I think that this fundamental distrust has something to do with that as well. A lot of roles that deal with caring for children, and especially young children, such as babysitting, preschool teaching, a lot of these roles are filled by women. That's for a lot of reasons, not just um, those arising from male privilege. I think a lot of times women are typecast in the role of being nurturing and working with children. So there are many other factors that go into that disparity, but I think one of them is also that Men aren't trusted with children and with babies in the same way that women are. And I think the privilege gap has a lot to do with that. You see a lot of male indignation over certain affirmative action style programs designed to benefit women. So for example, a common talking point is men complaining about how women might get preferential treatment for college admission or for access to scholarships for college. And this is another example of how this privilege creates a harmful paradigm in which women and now non-binary people are receiving more attention because they need it, frankly, because there is an imbalance in the culture. And so I think men who feel indignant about that would do well to stop and examine the reason that needs to exist in the first place. And that reason is men and male privilege. Wouldn't it be great if we lived in a culture in which men had the same kind of access to those programs? But wait, that doesn't really make sense, does it? And so if you were to remove the privilege paradigm, then all of a sudden you would have everyone having equal access to this resource. And that's the way it should be. That is the vision that these programs had in mind when they were founded. So I could give many more examples, but the point is that rather than enriching the lives of men, I believe that male privilege is responsible for a lot of the disconnection that men feel, and a lot of the isolation that men feel, a lot of the abandonment that men feel, and a lot of the story around women don't like me, or I can't find a partner, 
I'm not attractive, or even on the extreme end of the spectrum, being an incel or participating in incel culture. A lot of the suffering around this topic is rooted in the separation of privilege. I think that there are a lot of men who would like to be one of the gals, right? Just as there are a lot of women who'd like to be one of the guys. That kind of sense of inclusion would be much more possible in a world without the separation of male privilege. So from the separation of privilege and class, you also get oppression. And oppression is a deeper and broader and more malignant expression of this separation that I was talking about in the previous section. And oppression describes patterns of dominance and the resultant suffering, which are deeply ingrained, which are passed down generationally, both through families in lived trauma and ancestral trauma of those oppressed, and also in the blueprint of oppression in institutions and governments and the cultures of the oppressors. So oppression describes the broader and deeper and more fundamentally rooted patterns that come about as a result of privilege. Now, my intention in this episode is not to go into a deep meditation around oppression. There's a particular part of it that I want to focus on, which gets back to this binary of being privileged or being underprivileged. And the question I want to ask is, would you rather be the oppressor or the oppressed? Because again, I think sometimes it's easy to fall into this way of thinking that, well, in a system of oppression, as long as I'm on the side of the oppressor, I'm okay, or I'm fine, and I just have to make sure that I stay on the right side of that equation. And if I do, I'll be happy, or I'll be able to lead a fulfilling life, and I simply have to ignore or just not think about the lives of the oppressed. But I think that this is ultimately a really naive way to think about how oppression plays out in society. Another way to phrase this question, would you rather be the oppressor or the oppressed, is to ask, would you rather be the monster or the victim? Because this is essentially what oppression does, is it turns one group of people into being basically evildoers, or being people who perpetuate unjust environments. And then another group of people, the people who suffer under those injustices. A lot of men talk about feeling like monsters or feeling like they're being treated as if they were monsters or as if they could be monsters. And this is a really deep wound in the archetypal male psyche. So you'll have a lot of men who perhaps feel like werewolves. They feel like maybe a normal person during the day, but in private or in the moonlight or in their darker hours or their more troubled moments, there's this side of them that they feel coming out, which feels unstable, which feels violent, which feels unexpressed, which feels destructive, which feels misunderstood. There's a sense that there is a great power there, but that that power has been twisted for evil, or that in the very least, it could be very harmful to those around them. So a lot of men worry that they are monsters or werewolves, and a lot of people who aren't men 
worry that the men in their lives actually are monsters or werewolves. And so one interesting question to contemplate is, would you rather be the werewolf or the victim of the werewolf? And I think that there are a lot of people who, when faced with that question, would actually say, I would rather run the risk of falling victim to a werewolf than actually being one, right? Because who wants to be a monster? Being a monster is very isolating. The life of a monster is often a life of feeling very misunderstood. The life of a monster is often a life of exile or a life of feeling like there is no place for you in regular culture or in normal humanity. In their own way, monsters don't get treated very well. But to continue this metaphor, the interesting thing about being a werewolf is there's a certain challenge in shedding the power of being a werewolf. A werewolf who ceases to become a werewolf has to accept that they're also giving up the power of being a werewolf. And a lot of men are actually reluctant to do this. Even though a lot of men would love the connection that would come, the trust that would come, the intimacy that would come from them ceasing to be monsters are still reluctant to give up the power that they get from their monstrosity. And oftentimes what it comes down to is I think a lot of men want to be loved through the monstrosity. They want to be witnessed in their monstrosity and be beautiful anyway. They want to be accepted for who they are. This is what you see in a tale such as Beauty and the Beast. You actually see this showing up a lot in mythology, where you have these men turning into monsters and trying to find love or trying to find sympathy, trying to find someone who will see their humanity through the monstrosity. And the moral of a lot of those legends and fairy tales is that when someone finds their humanity, when a man finds his more just side, his softer side, his more vulnerable side, he'll actually revert to being the prince, he'll revert to being the normal man. And rather than the message being the taming of the beast, the message is accepting the beast and transmuting that energy into a kinder energy, into a more benevolent energy, basically becoming someone worth loving. Now, I think that there are still a lot of problematic themes in a story like Beauty and the Beast, like, for example, how it's the young woman's role to humanize the beast or to somehow bring him out of his wretchedness, and it's the redemptive power of her love. Uh, I think those themes can be very problematic. Really, it's the, the role and the heartfelt desire of the beast to reform himself to become someone worth loving. That's where the impetus needs to come from. But I still think that there is a lot of truth in that metaphor, and there's a lot of resonance in that story for a lot of men. So this question of would you rather be the oppressor or the oppressed, I think is a really important one to sit with. And I think a lot of people would arrive at the conclusion, I think it's kind of an obvious conclusion of, I would rather be neither, right? I don't want to be in a system of oppression. And in my mind, that's really the answer. That's certainly where I want to fall. I don't want to play that game. I don't want to live in that paradigm. Unfortunately, though, we don't get the choice. The precedents are too deep. The behaviors are too ingrained. The culture is too shaped around this notion for us to not be sitting on one side or the other of the spectrum. And so I think this leads us to the importance of doing the work, doing anti-oppression work. If we can't remove ourselves from the game, then we have to focus on reforming the game. We have to tackle it from the inside. And so I think a lot of men's work comes down to this question. How do we minimize the role of oppression? How do we tackle the various systems of oppression that are intact in our culture? How are we honest with ourselves about how much we're participating in the oppression?
how honest are men with themselves about the impact that male privilege and male oppression has on women and on non-binary people? How compassionate can we as privileged men be towards the stories and the experiences of people who aren't men? How well can we listen? How moved can we allow ourselves to be by the experiences of people who aren't men? How can we let those experiences galvanize us into action? How can we change our everyday behaviors, our micro behaviors to our macro behaviors, to align in the direction of moving away from the game of oppression? These are some of the biggest questions that come out of this work. And this causes me to think about another layer of this conversation is that privilege creates what I would describe as a spiritually hollow society. And what I mean by that is it creates a society in which there's a level of fundamental wrongness, which is often hard to fully interpret logically, but which can be felt very viscerally. So if you are a person who's living in an underprivileged population, then you experience probably daily a lot of discomfort that stems from your lack of privilege. You're probably experiencing a very regular suffering, and so it's not hard to connect the dots between the system of privilege and the suffering. But for a privileged person who doesn't have that reinforcement, who might not even be aware that that suffering exists, there is a different kind of suffering I believe that privileged people have what I would describe as a more spiritual form of suffering. It's the form of suffering that comes from being fragmented. It's the form of suffering that comes from causing harm without even realizing it. This is the kind of suffering that comes from being in a culture that I would argue is not intact, a culture that is fragmented, a culture that doesn't make sense, a culture that rests upon assumptions that don't hold up and that rests upon practices that aren't sustainable. And I think this is where a lot of existentialist dread comes from. I think this is where the suffering of nihilism comes from. The suffering of apathy that a lot of men feel is connected back to the notion of fundamental wrongness. Something is not okay about the way the world is. And while there are a number of factors, sometimes people experience the suffering coming back to grief about the environment and grief around ecological collapse, or grief around the state of politics, or grief around the observation of these broader patterns of suffering in the world, maybe grief around war. And first of all, what I want to say about that is that a lot of those ills in the world are happening as a result of systems of power and privilege. You can't separate those things. They exist directly because of the concoction of behaviors that arise out of privilege. But I also believe that part of this suffering connects directly to the state of spiritual sickness, which exists as the result of a society that is so imbalanced that it has created systems of privilege and underprivilege. So I think that people who are underprivileged suffer very materially. Those in positions of privilege also suffer, but their suffering is more spiritual in nature. And I have no desire to rate those sufferings versus each other, but more what I want to point out is that anywhere that you see systems of privilege and systems of oppression and systems of social hierarchy in which some people are considered more worthwhile or important than other people, you will see universal suffering. The notion that some people in systems of privilege are doing great and are living full and balanced and happy lives while others are suffering greatly is a fiction. 
I think when people are truly honest with themselves and when people are truly willing to examine the bigger picture of the reality in which they live and are truly willing to be honest themselves about their deepest feelings, they will admit that something feels wrong. They will have to admit that they themselves are also suffering. Before I go here, I want to say that I don't believe hierarchies and some of the privileges that can come from hierarchies are categorically bad or that they don't have their uses. So for example, the concept of leadership or the concept of certain people fulfilling powerful roles as a result of their experience or as a result of any number of virtues that they may have, this concept can be good and well and helpful and even necessary provided that it is applied responsibly and provided that it exists in a context where there is still the fundamental assumption and practice that all people deserve dignity and that all people are assigned the same fundamental value. Where the problems really start to arise is that people in positions of privilege and power are also given prioritized access to all of the rest of the culture's resources and are always having their needs met first. That's when you start to get into the really evil stuff. So for example, if you have a leader in your community who also gets access to the nicest stuff and also gets more food than everyone else and also is allowed to get away with misconduct because of their position, then you're living in an unhealthy system of power. But it's entirely possible to be a leader whose word is taken seriously, to be a leader who is allowed to do certain things that others in the society are not allowed to do, but who still shares their resources for the good of the group and who makes sacrifices when sacrifices need to be made. And I believe that part of the notion of real leadership is to put the needs of others before yourself. I think that's ultimately what a leader should really do. Leadership should ultimately be a role of service, and the privileges that come with leadership should be privileges that are required for the function of that role and not simply rewards for power. There are numerous examples of cultures that are structured in a more egalitarian way, where you still have privileged roles, but roles that are carefully designed and whose powers are carefully checked, and roles in which people aren't given more resources and more power than they really need. A lot of indigenous cultures have been structured this way through time, and some still are. And there are many more numerous examples of cultures in the contemporary era that have hierarchies that are more carefully designed and that are more sustainable and that have a lot more wisdom and a lot more heart behind them, and hierarchies that are ultimately designed for the good of the whole community and for the thriving of the whole community. So these things can exist, but they take an incredible amount of maturity and wisdom and heart and full collective participation to be played out in a healthy way, to be played out in a way that actually benefits. And even when they exist, they require a lot of vigilance, and they require a lot of intervention to make sure that they're staying on track, to make sure that these systems are actually working as intended, and that the powers they grant aren't being abused. I don't think we'll ever live in an environment in which people don't have to keep checking each other and keep maturing and keep applying their critical faculties to make sure that cultures and systems are unfolding in a healthy way. I think that is as fundamental a human need as any other that exists. 
So, thank you for joining me today on my meditation of privilege. I hope this conversation was useful to you. Take care, and I'll catch you next time. Thank you.